Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I just want to let you know that I'm really, really happy and excited about today. I'm talking about the interview that we're about to have with Kevin Riley. He is truly an extraordinary man, and you are going to find out why in just a few minutes. But before I get started, I wanted to thank you again for everything that you guys do We're closing up on another year, and I can't even begin to tell you how positive your feedback has been, and I'm thankful that you allow me to do this and you support this, and I will continue as best I can to give you the best show as possible. So without further ado, I'd like to do my cold open with Kevin Riley. As you know, I always look at my guests. I never know what I'm going to say, and today is no exception. But as I sit down across from Kevin Riley, I'm looking across from a guy who has taken a lot of hits in his career, yet he's sitting in the corner office, and he's the president of two of the biggest networks in the world. How does he do it? And the answer is you have to have the ability to get knocked down and be able to get up and then get knocked down again and get up again and get knocked down again multiple times and keep getting up and having a positive attitude about how it's going to happen if you believe in yourself. I can't help but look back on a trip I had in New York that I I've shared where I got to hang out with Dave Chappelle and I sit across from a guy who's turned down 50 million dollars 10 years ago because he believed in himself and he believed in what he had to offer and he was winning and he walked away from 50 million dollars and then 10 years later 
we all read that he just did a three-hour special trajectory with Netflix for $60 million. He stayed the course. Although Kevin Riley isn't an artist, he's been through a lot of different situations where he's experienced tremendous success. FX, historic proportions there with what he did with the series. Never been done before. NBC, he had six shows that were hits one year. Fox, where he made strides in the half-hour comedy world that had never been done on the network previously in probably over a decade. And TBS and TNT, where he's changing the whole fiber of the network and creating an initiative that's bringing on shows that have never been seen before on these two networks and are incredibly successful. It's one thing to be knocked down in a situation where you're not doing well, you're not doing the job, you're treating people like shit, the decisions you're making are bad. But at every level that Kevin Riley has been at in his career, you can look at it and you see enormous, enormous, undeniable success. Yet for some reason, changes kept being made. You know, it's easy to look in the mirror and say, oh, maybe it's me. And I'm sure as an executive and how great Kevin is, sometimes he might look in the mirror and say to himself, maybe there were situations that I could have handled differently. But one thing that he never handled differently was his belief in himself and his belief in his ability to make great decisions when it comes to television the ability to be able to assess whether a show and the talent within the show are hugely powerful entities and know the ones that aren't. And I can honestly tell you, in your life, let's face it, we've all taken the hits. We've all been knocked down. But the question is how we react when we're knocked down. Do we stay on the canvas? Do we get up and we're wobbly? Do we let the punch affect us and do we think about the punch all through our lives? Or do we clean the slate like Kevin Riley and move forward and believe in our talent so we can get to the next level, the next opportunity, and create greatness in that situation? And I think if you're able to do that in your job, like this man has done in his you'll definitely have an opportunity to have the kind of career that Kevin Riley has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Let's get right to it. This man deserves the proper introduction. And when you wake up, you're going to have a great time on this show. I guarantee you. Over a career spanning two decades, Kevin Riley has helped bring to life some of the greatest television shows of this or any generation. 
serving as president of five television networks, including NBC, Fox, FX, and currently president of TBS and TNT. Riley was born in Manhasset, New York, and earned his undergraduate degree from Cornell University and began his career at NBC, where he had a hand in the development of distinctive and groundbreaking hits, including the pilots of ER, Homicide, Life on the Street, and Law and Order. From 94 to 2000, he served as president of television at Brillstein Gray Entertainment, where he was responsible for shepherding some of television's top shows, such as the pilot for The Sopranos, the NBC comedies Just Shoot Me, and News Radio. In 2000, Riley served as president of entertainment for FX. In that role, he helped redefine the basic cable business with an aggressive slate of original quality programming, including Nip Tuck and Rescue Me. Within a year of his revival, FX made cable history with its seminal series, The Shield, which broke cable ratings records when it premiered and went on to win a Golden Globe Award for Best Drama Series and an Emmy Award for its lead actor and star, Michael Chiklis. After FX, Riley served as president of NBC from 2004 to 2007, where his vocal support helped The Office survive its low-rated first season and continue to syndication. And Riley developed other hit shows, including My Name is Earl, Heroes, 30 Rock, and Friday Night Lights. In 2007, Riley headed to Fox, where he oversaw the launch of the Emmy-nominated Golden Globe-winning pop culture sensation Glee, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which earned the Golden Globe for Best Comedy Series in its first season, New Girl, Fox's highest-rated sitcom in 10 years, and Gotham and Empire, two of the biggest hits of the 2014-15 season. Since 2014, Riley has served as the president of TBS and TNT and chief creative officer of Turner Entertainment, where in 2016 he shocked the industry by cutting out 50% of the ads and adding back 10 minutes of show content for TNT's new dramas, starting with hit show Animal Kingdom. At TBS, Riley has introduced both dark original dramas as well as an edgy comedy slate including Full Frontal with Samantha B, The Detour, Angie Tribeca, Wrecked, and People of Earth. Riley won the Larry Stewart Leadership and Inspiration Award, as well as the Gil Nickel Humanitarian Award, and sits on the board of directors of Mashable, member of the board of trustees for the American Film Institute, and in 2016 he was inducted into the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a guy I'm so proud to have here and have so much respect for, Kevin Riley. Wow. Thank you very much, Barry. It's great to be here. You look fantastic. You could, like, circumcise a small Jewish boy off of you. You're really in good shape. <laughs> you know, I feel pretty good. It's, uh, I, I had a, little, a few life adjustments in the last couple of years just in terms of my personal life, kind of, you know, got divorced, and, uh, and at the same time I was exiting Fox, and that and makes for a, you know, I don't recommend you do those things in the same <laughs> window, but it was, uh, it, it all ended up for the better. The other side of it is good. It's not the most fun process uh, all the way through. And I don't care, you know, in this country where it's so prevalent, you know, anybody in any way, shape or form, when, when they're in it, like everybody's in the same boat, you know, no matter how good it's going to go or you know, even the smooth ones, it's like, holy shit, is there an end to this thing? So, Do you ever say to yourself after that happens, it's possible to have a relationship that goes 
my entire life? Or do you say it's not possible anymore? You know, it depends what day you ask. Yeah, you know, I, I'd like to believe still inside, you, you kind of hope, everybody hopes that there's, you know, possibility for that. I've actually been with a woman now for a year and a half, coincidentally, that like was the last thing I planned on. You know, like uh, somebody came up to me who was a divorced guy, like held up his phone and goes, you're going out with her. And I go, yeah, set it up, whatever. You know, and then <laughs> a year and a half later, I'm still there. So it's going pretty good. But the reason why I say that is because I've always been fascinated by you. And I'll tell you why. You've always been successful and you had a marriage for a long time and it yeah. is successful. And I consider that successful. Yeah. And so you've been at so many different places and every time you're there, it's amazing the things that happened. Let's say NBC. Yeah. Your first full year in there, there were six things that went forward under your watch. Some fashion. And then a couple of years later, it's like, hey, pal, we're going to make a change. Yeah, as I say, I was, I was invited to no longer do the job. You're one of those guys who has had some nine real, lives. <laughs> more than nine lives. Yeah. And you've had situations where it's like you're a fighter who got knocked down, who's winning the fight to the 15th or 12th round and in the last two minutes somebody comes from yeah. nowhere and says you're going down yeah but you always come back and you always show the side of you that's so positive and no one ever sees the side of you i could talk to a hundred executives who work with you and not one of them would ever say Oh, Kevin, you know, he just walks around all moody. And it never happens. But I think, first of all, that's the nature of our business, right? I mean, I, I, I think that's great. But if you look at anybody who's sustained, I mean, that's one of the things I think I uh, respect more than anything is somebody who has hung in for a long time mm -hmm. and succeeded or had a second or third act. Uh, you know, when I was at Fox, we had American Idol, and I was like, holy shit, I'm up here with Steven Tyler. Now, I couldn't. it was one of those things where I couldn't. I remember seeing... Steven Tyler, like, you know, in a, an arena when they were at the absolute height. I was like, you know, uh, Aerosmith, man. And then I saw them like downtown at some shithole. Where even, I can't even remember where it was. Like someone goes, hey, let's go see them. I know the sound guy. They were like falling down. I, 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 like they were off key. They were like, you know, it was like a third of the place was even full. And I was like, what happened to Aerosmith? <laughs> and then they made a comeback, you know, I mean, they did a walk this way, and all of a sudden they had a new thing. I remember going to Howard Stern's 60th birthday, actually. Uh, that, when was it? The year that the Super Bowl was in New York. And, and I don't know Howard well, but I got invited. I had a thing when I was at FX. We had a show, which he roasted me on the air for canceling Son of a Beach for two weeks. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go for an hour. It'll be fun. I stayed for the full three hours because first of all, it was a great show, but it was like, there's a guy who I started listening to on AM radio when I was like making 12 cents as a PA and getting up. I would literally, he would get me through the day logging on in the morning when he would come on. And here he is having this whole crazy, all these celebrities showing up for him. I just respect resilience with people and reinvention, you know, and it, it's in our business. Like anybody who's successful, yeah, you know, sure. Like, you know, it's like the stand-up was an overnight sensation, but they don't see the knights in the yuck-yuck house getting fucking booed <laughs> off at one in the morning. And, you know, on my end of the game, especially someone who's been involved at being, you know, whatever, a head programmer or running a network, you kind of got to go on the line for this stuff. And I think if you don't, and if you don't stand for something, uh, 
you know, what's the job? Why bother doing it? And you can, and that's why some people get these jobs. The chair's only rented. Somebody told me that early on, like that chair's only rented. And you find that out very quickly. Like you're in it. You think you're good. You're popular. Four seconds as soon as later, when you're out of that chair, they're kissing somebody else's ass. So you'd like to believe that you stood for something, that you went on the hook, that you have something to show for it. With some people went, you know what? You put that on, or you helped me with that, or you gave me the shot. And I'm happy to say that even through a lot of those times, I was down, man. I was not happy. I was getting beat up and or fired. So, but I was really happy to see that on the other side of it, that all of that stuff going on the hook, getting out in front of it, accrues. And that's why, thankfully, I've been offered another job. But that and everybody, a lot of other people just suck. So, but you're always offered gigs. Let's just take somebody who I consider to be a genius yeah. in another profession, yeah. Bill Belichick. Yeah, <laughs> everybody knows why he was fired in Cleveland. Yeah, yeah, he was losing. Right. You teach your children to do a great job. Magic Johnson says, "Over deliver." Yeah, over deliver, you'll be successful, and that's what you've done every step of the way, and yet. You're one of the few guys who, for some reason, takes the hit yeah. and keeps on ticking. That's why I wanted to interview you so badly, because I'm so excited for you here. And what you're doing here is amazing. It's yeah. really incredible. No, it's going great. And you've changed the whole face of things. We're just warming up. <laughs> yeah, you, you convinced a man who's been doing things his own way successfully. But I mean, it was legacy. It's uh, kind of been going on autopilot and to a certain extent in some respects. Yeah, so you come in and you change the whole culture yeah. of the game. Yeah. When a guy who was here before you was a guy who was here for many, many years, right. Michael Wright. Yeah, well, they had very, very successful brands yeah. here that Steve Coonan ran out of Atlanta. Michael Wright ran the programming. They were just, they, they had really thrived, unbelievably profitable, and they had a certain audience that really liked a certain thing. Um, at, on a business level, they did an unbelievable job. I mean, they, they, these were money machines. And on a programming level, they had highly successful shows. What they just didn't quite line up with was that, you know, somewhere between when I was at FX, you know, almost 14 years ago, we kind of said, hey, some of the coolest stuff can come out of cable. And since that time, that's been the truth, that the real culture drivers were coming out of cable. And these brands didn't just line up with that. So they became these big superstores that a lot of people came to for different things. And just for our audience, I attribute the change in cable programming and scripted dramatic television to you with the shield on FX. It truly was the pivotal moment. And I don't, I, I really, you know, not even with false humility, don't walk around saying like the father of cable, but it is true that the facts are, you know, which Sean Ryan, who created it, Michael Chiklis, who took a chance, you know, those guys, that show, when I went to FX, I had this idea. Peter Liguori was running it. He had come out of HBO and he said, look, I kind of want to do this cooler thing. Blah, 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 blah. We talked about what the brand could be. And I said, well, that's great, but you're not going to, you're not going to get with any of this stuff, you know? Right. And so together we came up like, well, let's do this HBO for basic cable. So I'm trying to find this thing. And the idea was let's take what's going on. I had been involved in the Sopranos with HBO. I had been at Brillstein Gray, where we were doing this at HBO, and I said, why can't you do HBO kind of stuff on basic cable? And everyone said, well, you can't, the economics, and you blah, 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 blah. The only thing that was really working was 
There were some Westerns that TNT would make. There was a lot of stuff, really cheaply produced things like TV movies of the week done at Lifetime. And they would get really big numbers. And, you know, even at the time, I was like, well, what is our rating? We were doing like a 0.5 rating. And they said, if you could just get to a one. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, but, you know, Lifetime does a two rating. They get, forget it. You're never going to get a two <laughs> rating. <clears throat> and then we, we saw The Shield. I got the script. And I said to Sean Ryan at the time, he came in. He, he was given to me as a writing sample. And I said, well, we'll make this. And he was, at the time, like a mid-level writer. He had never really even made a pilot. And he sa I said, uh, he goes, well, what do you mean you'll make it? I go, no, we'll make this. <laughs> and at the end, now it's like, you know, everything's gotten kind of out there. But at the time, the lead character turns around and shoots another cop through the head in the last scene of the show. And he's like, well, exactly as I've written it? I said, yeah, yeah, as you've written it. And then the same thing happened with Michael Chiklis, you know, where he came in and he had his own thing where he had reinvented himself <laughs> and I wouldn't let him come in. I was like, he's a good actor. He's not really the guy we're looking for. And finally they said he'll read. And I'm expecting like, you know, the chubby bald guy to walk in, not the guy who's in tip top shape, chewing Nicorette gum with like a polished chrome dome. He came in like literally lasers coming out of his eyes, did his read walked out the door, slammed the door, and we were like peeled out of the seats. We go, okay, I guess he got that job. <laughs> and he just said, okay, here's the deal. I just want to know one thing. You're making this show, right? This show as scripted. He goes, all right, then I'm in. And then it was the first show to, not only did it then premiere to a four rating, which was a cable record, nobody had ever, I mean, literally, the poor guy, we literally had a guy, I, I, I God bless him, I'm not again, but that guy had a stutter who ran our, who ran our, uh, uh, to begin with, who in our research, and when I called the next day, and he was trying to tell me that we broke a cable record. Let me just say, it took a few times for him to get through the sentence. And then it went on to win, you know, the first Emmy for, for basic cable, the first Golden Globe. I was sitting next to Michael when they called his name, and he got up, and I grabbed his arm, like, where, where, where the fuck are you going? And he literally turned to me, and he goes, just go with it. Like, and I go, oh my God, he won. Now, you know, now they all take the trophies, but... So, yes, that had never really happened before. In a similar theme, yeah. there's a guy who runs the Fox Empire who's an older guy, Rupert Murdoch, who you might not think has as much of a hand in it, but you can guarantee that he had to probably approve the show going forward. For a guy you know, who has an autocratic reputation, and you certainly can see streaks of that, he, is not, he himself is not a content guy. He doesn't get in and send me the rough cut. He didn't even know the shield was on the air. But what he does is, is he does say content is important and I need people that run brands and he gives them the money and empowers them to do it. And Chernin, who was there, you know, we articulated what we wanted to do and he said, you know, you have a slim chance of succeeding with that, but sounds like a good plan. Go for it. And then Peter was really acknowledging of what we did. In fact, I had drinks with him two nights ago, and he, he still talks about it. It was an amazing thing of when that lit up. And that's what he did do. So he never even, the only time it got on his radar, frankly, was, we, <laughs> look, we were pushing standards like it had never been pushed before. And the amazing thing was we were doing all sorts of crazy stuff. But at one point, he happened, happened to see an episode because he kept bumping into people. We had a character who was a cop who was a closeted gay guy. And there was an episode where he happened to be slip out of frame and go down on a guy. <laughs> of course, that's the one Rupert happened to watch that night. 
he called up with a few notes the next day. It was an interesting, <laughs> it was an, literally one of those things. I mean, let me just say at that point in my career, he was not calling me directly. <laughs> and I'm like sitting in my, I'm at like, I, I think I was at lunch and all of a sudden it's like, uh, I have Mr. Murdoch calling. <laughs> like, I, I was like, who's goofing on me? Um, and then I'm in like a loud restaurant with him sort of talking to me and I'm going, yes, of course. Yeah. I have no idea what you're saying, but, uh, that was really the only time he weighed in on it. So again, so you have this most successful show here. You're changing the culture at all yep. these places. Things are working from the outside. When you read about something where somebody is moving on or they're making a change, you literally sit back and you just don't understand the concept well, of the business. But the truth is like, there's times when I haven't played my cards right politically. I mean, there are p political components to these big companies. The job I'm in right now happens to have politics really not be a part of it. It's unbelievable. I, I actually love the guy I work for. I love the people working for me. It's very clean. You know, if, if and when the AT&T merger goes through, I hope it's maintained because at this moment in time, the Turner culture is, is really a positive one. And it's great to put all of your energies into your job and not have to worry about, you know, vying for a chair or fighting. <clears throat> and... Look, part of the hard thing is I've been I've done a good job at places where the momentum has turned and stuff just it brings out the worst in people or can, you know, where all of a sudden the shit's hitting the fan. So I'm doing what I believe is right or what I believe is good work. At times, I haven't been savvy enough myself to have figured out how to play through that. I've worked with people who are unbelievable politicians. They just know how to. And, and by the way, some are unbelievable frauds and have succeeded being just an incredible learning how to, pl how to you know, play up. I can name names if you'd like. But I, I mean, there are ex I have seen experts who are great at thriving in an environment but with, with a lot of fraudulence. But I've also seen people who are really politically savvy and also the real deal. And I'd name his name Peter Chernin. Peter Chernin is unbelievable at figuring out how to both thrive in a look he had to throw he became a very you know he ran news corp he was his rupert's right hand man had to play through you know the, the family element peter did that in a very savvy and successful way for a long time and also happened to deliver the goods in many 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 different ways i'm a huge fan of his and so it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive at times i've been naive about that a little earlier in my career at times, I've been in a really political, really supercharged environment where I didn't want to play the game or probably should have done better. And so, believe me, there's times when I have my scars where I, I, did, I was bitter for certain times where I'd be like, I just got screwed, you know? And, and, and then I'd look back and go, yeah, you could have done this better or maybe you should have been ahead of that more or held the line harder, you know? Um, look, there's times when you got to... There, there were moments where I could have gone in and said, you know what, here's what I need, where I didn't even realize I had the leverage that I, that I could have had, which is, here's what I'm going to need right now from you, and if you're not willing to do it, I resign. And, and go, you know, fix it yourself. And at the time, I thought, well, I don't want to rock the boat, or you know what, I don't have the leverage, they're going to fire me if I do that. And, and I should have. I, I, there were times when I could have done that, and politically you know, got the rat out of the wood pile a little bit. Like, um, and sometimes you need to do those power moves. So that's your answer. And 
look, one of the good things about getting older is you do get a little perspective and you realize, you know, I say this a lot of times if I teach classes or something, you know, life is like a stock ticker. You know, you, if you bought the right stock and you go, God, this thing is quadrupled since I bought it. Well, it didn't go straight line up. Nothing ever does. There's times when there's peaks and there's times in the valleys and you hope that trend line just moves up. And so you get a little perspective and, you know, hopefully you get over those wounds and you can move on. You know, I mean, I definitely have some deep ones and even financial things. There are times where I've helped make people and companies a lot of money. And I myself, I've looked back and like, okay, I did okay. <laughs> you know, I was like, I don't know where my beach house is or why am <laughs> I not retired? Where's my G5? And believe me, we all have those things. I mean, I definitely can get that, you know, I can do the bitter act as good <laughs> as the next guy. But one of the things is when you do recover and you look back, you go, you know what? It's all part of it. Tell our audience a time when you're deciding on all the pilots that are going to be picked yeah. up. The DVD goes in, it plays, and everybody in the room is like, we don't think we're going to do this. And you've sort of pounded your fist on the table or you said, hey, listen, you brought me here because of this, and that show is going on the air. Is there a show that you fought for? There's a, there's a million, I mean. I mean, I know The Office, you fought for it staying on after it was already on. That, that one I did fight to get on, I would have never have even gotten on. I mean. Uh, so The Office was one. Tell us some other ones where you really fought where the group didn't think it was gonna be something special. But also I want you to tell me a situation where you were like, listen, this isn't going anywhere, but if you guys want to go forward, we'll put that one on. And it was successful. I've never had that one happen. <laughs> I got to be honest with you. I really have, you know, uh, and, um, but, but fortunately now I'm finally at a place in my career and at a company where, you know, I don't have to like fight the powers, you know, and go against the man, you know, I mean, a lot of autonomy and, and, uh, endorsement to be able to go we're doing this and you know I'm, i work with guys who say great that you know sounds like a good plan and you know you know we're, we're very much in sync back through the old broadcast days you know those were crazy times because you know like certainly i did two tours at nbc you know you used to get you know the, those compressed now television is vastly different which is the whole focus of my real focus of my career today beyond putting on programs is just the complete change in the business. But that, those rooms where you were sitting there in the compressed week of getting the, getting the cuts, screening them, having these debates about what went where and what made the cut and Tuesday, I cannot tell you, it, it, it's some of the most bizarre compressed, also the, the nature of the, the experience from you usually just got these things. This was going to make or break your whole year, and in some ways your whole career. What Kevin's alluding to is when you do pilot season, which normally is from January through around the end of April, yeah. and then people will be delivering their pilots normally the first week of May, and there'd be a week or a weekend where executives would get in the room and watch every single drama pilot, yes. every single yeah. comedy pilot, and then they'd have to make a decision for the upfronts. Which would be literally like a week later where you're going out to sell them billions of dollars worth of advertising. But it really is, it was a very insane and heady process. I mean, now it's almost quaint because the, the business is so vast and there's so much more commerce that goes on in so many different places. 
But at the time to be a part of that era where it was still a pretty powerful position because a lot of people, you know, wanted to find out if they had jobs, you know, writers, directors, actors, hey, was my show picked up? So they're hanging on it. Studios with their commerce, which is how many do we get picked up? This is going to be the lifeblood of our whole studio selling these things internationally. We don't know how many shows do we get? How was our you determined a lot of people's fates. So there were agents lobbying and studios lobbying and talent lobbying. And really, it was like Washington, you know, and at the same token, in that room, not it would have been far easier if it was you as the entertainment president got to sit with your people like what shows do we love? You had to go through research and then you had your your head of ad sales weigh in, you know, it back in the day at NBC, we used to have like Dick Ebersol was a powerful guy who ran sports. Dick had some experience entertainment. So Dick, while being a smart guy, thought he knew everything about everything and used to come and set bombs off all the time. You know, well, I wouldn't put that on Tuesday. Well, where would you put it? I don't know. I got to run, you know, <laughs> gee, thanks for the help, Dick. You know, you've just now blown up the schedule and uh and, and I and I single him out because he single handedly pounded the table about 19 times telling me how the office was the worst show we ever saw. And I can't believe I'm putting this thing on the air. <clears throat> that was one of about 10 of those go rounds. And at one point in time, he actually we had a funny. I remember him getting up and coming up and hugging me and being like, you know, hey, this is just this is just what we do. And I was like, yeah, well, I appreciate that. But maybe fun for you. <laughs> and, you know, you had your head of affiliate relations and you had a lot of people who really knew nothing about programming, giving you crazy opinions. Like, well, I think the, I think the one guy is kind of, I think the wife is sort of cute and we need things with some female appeal and maybe we should put that on and might be good after that. And you're going, oh my God, I want to put a bullet in my head. And so some of it was humoring that process just to get to the end. But, you know, when things were not going well and you were down or you had to come off a tough year, it led a lot more opinions free and, the, and you had a lot more, you know, a lot of backroom conversations where everyone would go, Hey, we're behind you. Hey, thumbs up looking good. And they'd shut the door and they, you know, like, Oh, this thing suck. We're not going to, and all I can say is there was also, I learned very little correlation with all of that helpful input, quote unquote, and the end result. None of knew anything. And so you had to really just see through the noise and go, well, this is what we're going to put on. And quite often, even the research, as you know, famously documented, you know, with low testing pilots like Seinfeld. <laughs> and I was in the room as a junior executive the year that Seinfeld screened. It was the best thing I'd ever seen in my life. And they read the research report. And even legendary programmer Brandon Tartikoff said, look, we love it, but it's too New York and too Jewish. We're not putting it on. And I remember thinking like, wow, either I don't know shit or this is a big mistake, <laughs> you know, and then it did get a four episode order and the rest is history, but the lowest order so, in history. Yeah. So the truth is like through that process, I went through some insane, crazy times. I mean, look, I was the head of drama at NBC when we did the ER pilot and I had put on a show. NBC was struggling in drama at that point. I was not having a hot hand. And I was like, okay, this is not fun. I put on this show, Homicide. I thought it was really good. Uh, Barry Levinson, Tom Fontana. It was amazing. Kind of a seminal cop show, but it was just okay. It was just doing, barely hanging out. I was like, wow, that was my big show. I'm struggling to get stuff going on. Traction. The next year, the ER pilot. And I was like, okay. I didn't know it was going to be groundbreaking, but I was like, I think this thing is going to be good. It comes in, it screens. 
everybody craps all over. It kind of storms out of the screening room. <laughs> I literally walk down the hall and I go, this is it. I don't know how, but I'm leaving the network. I'm done. Like, I, I, I actually think this thing is pretty good. You know, Warner Brothers, who had the pilot, you know, the rest is history there, too. Tested it that night. They invited me to go to the test. I remember I went out to dinner with David Nevins, who I was working with at the time. We now run Showtime. Yeah. We went to dinner. We walked in the room. When we walked in, you could see the test was straight lined across the top of the chart. And the people were having the, the focus group was saying things like, I don't know who this is, but they should get a box of Emmys out because this is going to be like it's going to be like NYPD blue only better. People are like, this is the most amazing show ever. We go, okay, you stocked the pond. This can't be true. And then they did like five more times and get together the same result. Even then, the network was like, yeah, we'll put it on, but I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and so I left. <laughs> I left the company and was pretty bummed out. I mean, had I known it was going to go on to be a 40 share, <laughs> you know, I might have stayed. So let me tell you, I was bitter. You talk about bitter. I was not super thrilled the next year to realize like, all these geniuses were there collecting the points, like running around on the victory parade. And I like had the scars and I go, yeah, you know, I guess I'm out of the story. And, and that happened a few times for me, but, and, and I really did cling to that for a long time, but then there was a point where you're like, all right, moving on, you know? And now it's like, okay, great. It's a funny story to tell. Hey everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest 
be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. I want to go way, way back. Yeah. Where you grew up, your family. Yeah. And what was the first inspiration that made you want to get into the entertainment business? You know, a, a confluence things. I, I just loved movies and television as a kid. I mean, I was obsessed. And I always kind of knew on some level I wanted to, you know. What were your favorite shows and movies? You know, I mean, look, it depends what age you're asking me. But, you know, I mean, like watching Lost in Space, Lost in Space at three in the afternoon, you know, with the old TV <laughs> that you had to turn the dial on. That's how fucking old I am. But I literally would sit there, you know, just within reach so I could just turn the thing around to the three channels with my nose 12 inches from the thing, hmm. you know, in the good old days. And then, uh, you know, I watched a lot of TV and, you know, I came from a really, you know, great family with a very complicated alcoholic father. And in some ways that was like probably my refuge and my mother loved TV and she loved to laugh at TV. Like I'd watch, I love Lucy with her. She loved that. Like she let me stay up and watch laugh in. That was, I thought that was amazing. And probably on TV, the thing where I really realized I want to do that was that was the, I remember as a teenager, Saturday Night Live coming on, and I thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I was a big Monty Python fan, and I was like, this is like Monty Python on American television. And kind of at that time, I just, in the back of my head, say, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I don't even know what it is, but I want to do that somehow. Now, normally, there's two ways you can go when there's a role model in the house that's yeah. an alcoholic. One is you become that person and you yeah. start drinking, and the other is you say, I'm not going to be that kind of person. Yeah. How did you turn out to say, Oh, I drink like a fish. But I, uh, <laughs> somewhere in between, I got my two, I got my, uh, my two, my, me and my two brothers, I, I think we just realized like you gotta, you can change your legacy, you know, and, uh, Look, he grew up with the same deal with his father, was a very, very, uh, very tough man, also a big drinker. And, you know, I, I just said, look, for me personally, I was always like, I never want to become an alcoholic because I never want to quit drinking. You know, <laughs> so it was a very practical decision. But, um, you know, I just apply the energy in different, different ways, you know. But I do think to a large degree, like a lot of people, in some ways to get in into show business in some fashion, it was a refuge, you know, watching stories and other people perform. I was like, that's for me was like the, the escape. So what was your first foray into the business? Your first break? You know, I came out of college Cornell. Yeah. Cornell. And I, I was a communications major there, which, you know, prepared me for nothing, but it just was like a way of somehow getting my foot in the door. And I'd write, take screenwriting courses at Ithaca College because Cornell just didn't have that kind of thing. And, you know, now you're a Google search away from anything. But, you know, back in the <laughs> old days, you know, I had no idea. I was like, I don't even know where to start. I wasn't in a showbiz family. I grew up on Long Island. I was like, what do I do? And literally, my mother, who was doing some real estate at the time, rented a guy who was at BBDO in advertising. He was a very successful advertising producer. He was on the commercial production part. And 
I met with him and he said, hey, a lot of people start in commercials. I can give you some names of companies. And I ran around, I got hired as a freelance PA. And I, my first job was literally cleaning out wardrobe closets of a produ commercial production company. I was down in the basement. They had like years worth of like incredible stuff, like clothes. I was down there going like, oh my God, this is like Ralph Lauren. I was like, and this guy I was working with was like, yeah, just help yourself. They're going to throw it out. <laughs> and I remember like literally telling the head of the company, what is it? She's like, give it away and throw it away. Give it away and throw it away. And then they had closets up and the thing, give it away and throw it away. And I remember three days in, I'm, I'm done. And I'm like, done it all. And then this woman, Stacy, who ran the place was like this diva that everybody was afraid of. And she walked out and she was like, where's my Burberry raincoat? And I realized I fucked, I gave it away. <laughs> and the guy who was like the super of the building who had been doing this and he looked at me, he just shook his head. He goes, mm -mm. like, you know, <laughs> she knows nothing about this. And I go, okay, <laughs> I'm in. And, but that was my first job throwing away a raincoat. <laughs> so where did it go from there? Uh, I, fr I freelanced in New York City for two years doing commercials and music videos. And I did with like 150 of them. I never slept. It was a great experience. You know, I, I made $13,000 my first year. And I literally went, I, I, I couldn't afford to live in the city. So I was like crashing on people's couches. My brother had an apartment. I did one of those like partitions around the couch in the living room. Brillstein Gray Entertainment. I, I knew after a very, very short amount of time that I did not want to be in marketing and uh, I needed to get into some creative thing and I got through a series of events. I ended up getting interviewing at NBC and at, N at NBC Productions at the time, which was the precursor to what is now the in-house production company. And at that, and then I got hired at NBC. That's where I met our mutual friend, Peter Engel. That's where he had that grandfather deal where he had those six shows on the air, like Saved by the Bell. My first show in the network business was Saved by the Bell. And it was a show that we produced for the Disney Channel called Good Morning, Miss Bliss. That was the first time a broadcast network production company had produced a show for a cable network, which they then canceled after 13 episodes. And... At the time, Brandon Tartikoff was running the network, said, keep the good-looking kid, the blonde, and the funny-looking one, and figure out what the show is. And, you know, Peter and I, and, you know, Peter's book is now out on the market where he tells the story. And, you know, I was in the trenches with him at that time. That's how we became friends. And the amazing thing is this weird show that at the time I was like, hey, this kind of turned into something. Like, nobody was paying attention to it at the place. No one knew what it was, you know. 5,000 episodes later that he produced, it was like, you know, this unbelievable gold mine for them. And, you know, and it being a great thing for Peter. That was your first job. I was there for six years at NBC all the way to the end where I was the head of drama and put on E, before ER went on, I quit. And then I went to Brill Singer. And that's where I remember first meeting you. Right. That was an incredible job because, well, first of all, Bernie Brillstein, an amazing man. One of a kind. Truly, truly a... a you know, a piece of an era went with him, you know, one of the classic old, you know, great, great Hollywood guys. I mean, I, I, I just in so many ways, I mean, he was a big influence on me, huge heart, wore it on his sleeve, you know, it's just a character. I mean, I, I wouldn't even name the actor at one time. I remember Bernie being on the phone with, with a guy, a really difficult pain in the ass client. 
And I mean, you know, I remember picking up the phone and he's sitting there like sitting there with his on his belly and he's like eating a cookie and the crumbs are all <laughs> over him. And he's like, ah, oh, kid, how are you? <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. <laughs> You're the best. That's fucking great. I love it. That's okay, great. And as he's picking up, he goes, oh, you fucking ass wipe. <laughs> and I was like, Bernie, you hadn't even hung up the phone. Like, literally, he's like, he's got it halfway there. And I was like, geez, Bernie. <laughs> and he's like, well, ah, fuck him. <laughs> like, you know, and, and you know, and, and I, but, but truly, truly did love his clients. That was not, uh, that was really the exception, you know, because this guy was crushing him at that point. One of the last pieces of advice he ever gave me, he says, kid, as a manager, if that flashing light is on in the phone and it's a client and you got a pit in your stomach, fire them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know what? That was, he sort of lived by that because the truth is he loved his clients and he really didn't, he didn't humor and he didn't have clients that he couldn't stand. And then because that's not a long-term relationship. And, and if, you, if it is, it's not one you really want to live. So he didn't, uh, he didn't do that. You know, I saw him really just the opposite. I saw the unbelievable loyalty to him. And I, I was on the other side of that. I will never forget being in his office when he's negotiating the deal for Rob Lowe. He loved Rob, loved him. He pitched Rob for, you know, the thing about Bernie is we pitch his clients for everything. He'd be like, how about, how about Rob for that? You're like, the guy's, the guy's supposed to be short, bald guy. He's like, Rob can do it. You know, and, but, you know, Rob, uh, he was closing. They were negotiating for Rob to go into West Wing. And at this point in time, I don't think I'm speaking out of school. Rob needed some money at that point, And he was in the middle of building a big house. And I knew, because I was at the company and Bernie had told me, I knew Rob like wanted the gig and needed the money. And I remember Bernie essentially telling him to go fuck themselves and hung up and basically said, he's out, we're done, we're out, fuck yourself. <laughs> hung up the phone, I go, Bernie, he wants that. He's like, I'll come back. <laughs> you know, and he got Rob, he got Rob the deal he wanted. You were there when the Sopranos yeah. came forward. Yeah, again, a crazy process. And the truth is like so many of these things, you know, when you're in it, like now it's like, oh, the, you did the Sopranos and I've got the thing on my wall. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a clean story. You know, I mean, we we had this script and David Chase was a guy who was a talented guy that had always worked in network, but never had his own show. And he wrote a script for Fox, which is where we developed it. And at the time we had had Anthony LaPaglia attached for a minute at Fox. And I remember coming back from Christmas vacation when they said, you know, we like it. We just don't love it. Bob Greenblatt, uh, who's now at NBC, was was in the drama job, and Bob always liked it. But they had an, a president who was no longer there, running the place at, at the time, and he said, "John doesn't like it, and uh, we're gonna have to pass." And then it kicked around for two years, and you know, we sent it all over town, and everybody passed, and nobody wanted it. And then through the relationship at HBO, you know, they had done a lot of Larry Sanders and Chris Albrecht. Chris Albrecht was there and Brad and Chris went back and Bernie had done a lot of business there over the years and they ordered a pilot and you know, the, the rest was history there too. And in, but it's amazing to me that when that hit, that people were calling up going like, you know, some people call up and like, who's this kid, David Chase, you know, <laughs> I mean, who was like 52 at the time. <laughs> And others were like, hey, I always liked it. I mean, I always loved it. You know, does he have another one? You know, what's next? You know, I mean, you know, I always loved that script. I was like, I'm pretty sure you passed on it when we sent it to you. You know, it was unbelievable. It was like literally cliched Hollywood, you know. Um, 
But look, I, I to be honest with you, it wasn't my company. That when when I became acutely aware, like, oh, I wasn't a partner in the company. You know, it was Brad's company at that point, even. You know, and Brad went on the ride, and I became a footnote. And I'll be honest with you, I was like bitter at the time. I was like, wait a minute, I, you know. And believe me, when the deposition came around, when the lawsuit came, it was like, so it started in your office, and the idea was pitched directly to you. And you, I was like, yeah, that's all in the writing there. But, it, it, you know, so again, to bring it full steam, like everybody has their scars and their stories, but then you move on, you realize, like, look, I was lucky to be involved with it. It was an amazing experience. And, you know, if you keep your own spirit up and you're in intact, like the next chapter comes. And so your next step after that was where? Uh, I went from there to, I had gotten called for a couple of cable jobs and went from there to FX, yeah. which at that point, um, you know, was really a ragtag. Like Fox had not been in the cable business. They had this cable network um, that they started and they had like, we used to play cops on a loop. I mean, literally 24 hours a day. And... <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't on in New York and it was only in 50 million homes. You know, at that time, full penetration would be upwards of 92, 93 million. We were in 52 and not on in New York. Pretty hard to sell advertising when you can't even watch it in New York. And, but I knew they had done a deal for NASCAR and I knew they were going to grow the distribution. And I just was like, I liked Peter Ligori a lot. And I thought, I'm just going to do this job. And, just because I think I can do this. I think this could be interesting. And I just need to get out of, you know, it was somebody, uh, I was like, I need to make my own mark. I don't want to work at somebody else's company where he's now become, you know, a big deal and I'm a footnote. And uh, I went there. And what's funny though, I remember is we, Brillstein Gray offices were beautifully done, as you remember. Like, you know, a designer, every coffee table was $10,000. There was art on the wall. You met with the designer. Anytime you had to make a change, the designer would have to come and approve it. I went over to FX. <laughs> we were in a god-awful building on Sepulveda that literally had, like, shag green carpet in the conference room from 1972. My office had a hole had been punched in the wall <laughs> and the two chairs were mismatched. And I remember the time like the office manager came up and said, uh, listen, if there's anything you want, anything I can help you with, you just let me know. And I go, Hey, do you think I could, um, do you think I could get two chairs that match? And she said, no, I'm sorry. I can't do that. And, uh, and, and I was like, uh Oh, and Eric Schreier, who will tell these stories because, and he has, who's now the, uh, a president of production for FX productions, and it's still at FX, was my assistant at the time, and he came in in a panic. He's like, we made a terrible mistake. I need to get out of here. I need to leave. He had like two security guards who were union guys who basically had sat in the lobby watching television all day, and nobody ever came in the building. And all of a sudden, they had like 150 visitors a day, and they, they, they were treating these guys like they were receptionists. So they, the union, they, had, they, they filed a union complaint for abusive behavior against Eric, who was calling down and going, do you know who that guy was? You need to, you need to get, be nice to them and respond to them. And they're like, what? So he has like a union complaint against him, and he's got a giant stain on the rug around his desk, and he's like, I got to get out of here. And I go, just sit tight. We're going to be fine. And Eric's been there now, you know, 15 years and is a president. So uh, it worked out okay for the kid. <laughs> 
But that's where that started. And I, I was a little nervous myself. But then, you know, a year later, we had The Shield. And then it was just, you know, The Shield, Nip Tuck, and then Rescue Me, and a, a cool show that John Corbett starred in with Craig Robinson called Lucky. And uh, just things were just, it was a blast. It was really, really a blast. And so your next step after that was where? I went from there back to NBC, which was a terrible mistake. You know, I had grown up there. I had always looked down the hall and went, eh, I don't know, maybe someday I could have that office now, at the end, you know? Why do you say it was a terrible mistake? Well, look, here's here's the, what happened. It's really the short story is I'm at FX. At that point, it was one of the few times in my career where it all lined up. Like, I, I had every job offer in town. People were calling me. I was negotiating with Showtime. And Showtime at that point was really the distant cousin to HBO. So there was kind of nowhere to go but up. I lived in Santa Monica. I could have Palisades. I only had to drive to Westwood. They were literally throwing money at me. I was like, ah, and I think I'd like a pony. And they were like, yeah, we can do that. I, I very rarely have had that situation. I'm all the way down the road with Showtime. And Matt Blank, who's a great guy who really went on the line and was, pay, was vastly improving my compensation package at the 11th hour there was a shakeup at nbc and that's when zucker called and all of a sudden i'm interviewing with nbc and i got to admit like the emotion kicked in and i was like oh i have unfinished business i always dreamed of having that that thing down the end of the hall this is you know I, it's nbc and i had some influential people tell me i should go take that's the big job but i knew in my heart that I had already gone to cable when it was really unpopular. I knew that cable in my gut was the next wave. And really, truthfully, I could have made more money with a shorter drive and just been a superstar at Showtime. Instead, I was like, okay, I'm going to take less money, drive to Burbank every day from the Palisades, and get my ass kicked for four years when the wheels came off. And I knew five minutes after I signed on that that was a mistake. Literally five minutes. Why? Because I realized there was an enormous amount of entitlement in the organization. They had been the peacock, must-see TV network for so long. Record profits, amazing shows, unstoppable. And everybody was smoking their own shit. And they didn't realize, if you looked at the trend line there, and I wrote this paper. I made a, what I thought was a genius move, but ended up being a really stupid one. I had this Jerry Maguire thing. Before I started, I wrote a paper, which is about NBC's at an inflection point. And basically, like, you're about to go, you're about to blow up. And you need to, we need to be risk-taking. We need to get, and I even thought, I said, we need to do some big serialized shows that were out of favor. I wanted, you know, some big ideas, get away from the procedurals, which were that time, it has to be a procedural. And I, I did a real analysis of what I thought was wrong with the place. And I sent it in. And I thought they were going to call me up and go, thank God the Savior's here. These, this is genius. This is just what we need. And it was like crickets. My boss at the time, Jeff Zucker, never called me. None of my coworkers called me. And I was like, well, that's weird. And I really overlook a little thing called buy-in, which is that these are the people that are doing the jobs. They, you need to get people. <laughs> that was very naive of me at the time that even if some of the people thought that was right, and I subsequently down the road years later did have some people go to me, you know, a lot of what you said there really came true. But at the time, they were so snowed and thought they were such geniuses. 
I'm not pointing out any individual, but just the system was like, we're NBC. It was always, their thing was always, we're the Yankees. We may have down years, but we always win the pennant. And I was like, well, let me just tell you, the Yankees are about to get their ass kicked. And I naively thought that I was going to be able to turn the place around, but I didn't realize that the people, a lot of the people in the system hadn't bought into that, that they were going to get their ass kicked. So I had some people who weren't buying into me. I don't think they really believed that I was fit for the job in some level. I hadn't really got endorsement for the job. I was kind of being set up. And then when the shit hit the fan, it got very political in New York above me. And truthfully, I just didn't have, that is why I ultimately got invited to no longer do the job, even though a lot of great shows got put on because I never really had the buy-in. And so in retrospect, it was a tremendous learning experience, but you know, would I have liked to have had those four years back from my life, you know, spending more time with my kids when they were little? Yeah. Would I have liked to have gone to Showtime and keep raking in the genius points rather than I had career repair to do after that? You know, I mean, I went from being like a hot guy that they were throwing jobs off or two to be like, you know, I wasn't like they weren't backing away from me, but it was like, oh, that didn't go so great, you know? Um, but I think stories came around of friends of yours who plotted behind your back on ski trips and didn't share things with you. A lot of stuff went down, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't really, it really was no fun. I mean, I will say for that four years, I had exactly zero fun. So, and I can't say there was a day where I was like, God, I'm loving this. I, I had unbelievable experiences with great shows and great artists, getting to know Lorne Michaels, working with Tina Fey, Steve Carell, Greg Daniels, you know, putting on Heroes, Friday Night Lights, Pete Berg. I mean, I can, it, those were, those what was great about it. And I had associates and I learned a ton. I learned, you know, like anything that knocks you around in life. But just going to work every day was simply no fun. It was a, it was a game of survival. So, you know, it was great to finally, you know, look, to his credit, Peter Chernin always said, we should have never let you leave FX. And really within a couple of weeks, he had called and said, just come back. Come back to Fox. Come back to Fox. And then you experienced great success. Yeah, there. it was five years of five years of unbelievable fun stuff. You were the first guy in decades to have a scripted half-hour comedy. Yeah, actually rate. Yeah, and be a hit. The new girl. We put on, yeah, the new girl was great. We put on a lot of comedy, and then Glee just kind of lit it up. And we had a lot of fun, you know, and then the last couple of years wasn't fun. But nobody sees that you're not having fun. Yeah. You hide it well. Yeah. The thing that had happened, you know, my main thing there, the main reason I was having fun, not even so much to do with Fox, although is that I felt like the system, I can see, I could see that television was beginning. It started with the DVR where I was like, okay people are now watching this differently. You know, this delayed viewing is already becoming a business problem. And then with Netflix came online and you could see that we were beginning to create a, a binge thing and a, a different way of people consuming this. And the competition was now getting furious. Not only were, now there was not a handful of good shows on cable, there was a herd of great cable shows and they were winning all the awards. And Fox, that had always been the edgy network, was now edged out. And it was getting harder to make noise. And we couldn't even do, you know, the stuff that the cable networks were doing or then even that Netflix went on to do. And I realized, like, we need to 
change the system and begin pivoting this business of how we do it or we were going to get, and that's where I was just felt like I was in a, a, an older system, not Fox, but just the broadcast network system. We were still doing that. You know, I got a lot of play for saying pilot season should end. I didn't think that was any prophetic thing. I was like, it, when it was a tip of the iceberg, I was like, we just have to start changing the way we do things. And yet it was still the deliver the pilots in May and lock yourself in a room. And I was like, none of this matters, man. Cause I knew I'd walk down the hall and anybody below the age of 40 wasn't even watching it on television anymore. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Could be one word, could be a sentence, okay. anything that comes to mind. Tina Fey. Extraordinary. I'll, I'll, I'll say what Lauren said to me when I visited. She's an A student and truly an A student, meaning she will get it done. And there are people on the planet who are just doers just doers they don't make a spectacle of it they don't ask for they don't they say like i'm do you realize i'm writing producing acting doing all of this and by the way i'm a mother they don't they don't they don't they don't do that they just do and she just did samantha b i mean she's a doer you know she just they, they just like say like yeah i'm gonna do this now and <laughs> they just deliver they're the best conan o'brien conan is fantastic you know i've known him for 15 years I'm so glad he's here. It's so strange too, because I was at NBC when some of that craziness began. When they, when the Tonight Show thing hit the wall, I tried to bring him over to Fox, and then he ended up coming to TBS, and then here I am. And we're now exploring a whole new path of, you know, digital, digital business that we've never done before. Conan's extraordinary. You can put Conan in any situation with anybody, and he will be pitch perfect. And I mean that. Alec Baldwin. You know, there's few people on the planet more comp complicated and more talented. And I think that's been proven time again. And I think he himself would agree with that statement. <laughs> I mean, he is extraordinary. Dennis Leary. You know, I didn't get to know Dennis really well. But, you know, when because I then exited before the series went on. But, you know, he was the guy who called me up. He was like, you know, you're doing some cool shit there. And, uh... I think we can trust you with this thing. And I was like, you can. He goes, all right, yeah, we'll do it with you. <laughs> and, uh, and then he went on to do exactly what he said he was, he was going to do. And then I just watched the show as a fan. Phil Hardman. Oh, man. He was... Uh, Phil was unbelievable. I mean, uh, sweetest, sweetest man in uh and just he he also could almost do anything you know there's those comedians that make other comedians laugh that was phil matt groaning i didn't really get to know matt 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 is an enigmatic guy to begin with and matt you know that simpsons organization after 30 years is uh, a big organization with a lot of guys like uh al Jean, who's run the show for a long time so i didn't really get to know matt well but he was always really respectful and uh you know he created truly one of the most unbelievable pieces of art and enterprises. It is just an enormous worldwide enterprise. David Spade. Oh my God, Spade. It's one word, Spade. <laughs> you know, he's the same guy at a show as he is at a party, uh, you know, as he is in real life. And he's, uh, look, Spade, Just Shoot Me was a funny show. There was no part for Spade. We kind of forced him in there. And, you know, that's where you saw the magic of spade he took a show that was 
could have been an okay show and it was like overnight something that people really wanted to watch because of Spade. How do you think that happens? A guy just gets placed in and he becomes the star of the show by a hundred times. You know, as you know from being around talent, you know, and, and, and Bernie used to say the same thing. It's like it, it's there. So it's not a miracle when it shows up. It's 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 always a happy accident when it comes together. But, you know, he comes in. It's not like Spade's like, oh, no one knew the guy was funny. No one knew he could do it. It was like it, it was just, you know, he's just doing his thing that he's always he'd always been doing. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't. We did a show together based on his father. He had always his funniest stories were always about his father and his father doing the dune buggy and we did a short-lived animated show that didn't come together um but you know he's always a guy that's you know as you know sometimes a lot of comedians are not as funny off screen spade is james gandolfini you know i I also didn't ultimately log a lot of time with jimmy but uh i can just say that that was one of those extraordinary things when he created that character and I, one thing I did know is that everybody who was around him loved the guy. You know, he was very shy. So I, I, as it went on, I didn't get deeper involved in the show. I ultimately left the company and got involved in my other things. So I can say I got to know him, but what I saw was that everybody he had touched like really loved him. And uh, he had this unbelievably sweet core that everybody spoke about. But when you watch an unlikely star become a star, that's that star power. I mean, you know, believe me. And, and I remember Chris Albrecht, the day he picked it up, like he literally put his head in his hands and he was like, like he was in slight pain the day he said like, okay, let's do it. We were in the room. He was like, oh, okay. All right. Let's okay. <laughs> because he's looking at this guy, you know, overweight, you know, prematurely bald, not a leading man but had brought such empathy and humanity and complexity to the thing where you could see the anger in his eye when he needed it, but you could also see the sweet guy that just wanted to save the ducks. And it was pretty amazing. Tracy Morgan. Oh, my God. I'm back with him. You know, we just picked up a show from Tracy. You greenlit 10 episodes. I'll tell you this. Before there was ever Alec in 30 Rock, the first script, this, this is how amazing Tracy is. So Tracy's, you know, Tracy's one of a kind, right? <laughs> Tina said, I'm writing for Tracy because Tracy's always funny. And that's Tina Fey going, no matter what, I don't know what this show is going to be. I don't even know if I'm in it, but I can tell you right now, it's going to have Tracy Morgan in it. And uh, he is thankfully healthy and back on his game. I'm actually hoping to see him next week in New York. But I heard he just killed. He's killing with the stand-up act he did. And he's got, it's on Netflix. I love it. I'm plugging Netflix. I think they need the help. <laughs> Ray Romano and Joe Rogan. <laughs> I did. You know, I don't know Ray, but he has a lot to thank me for since I fired him from the table read of <laughs> news radio and replaced him with Joe Rogan. So it was a win-win for both of them. I mean, that was truly one of the craziest things ever is God to Burlstein Gray was handed a stack of stand-up tapes. This was a Dana Carvey HBO young comedian special. In that stack was Jeff Foxworthy and Ray Romano. And I was like, listen, these guys are really different, but they're both funny. Like, I don't really get the redneck thing, but you know what? It's actually kind of funny. And I was like, this Ray Romano, man, he does this whole thing about his mother could like get hit with a bullet and still keep coming with the pasta. Remember that joke? And I was like, this guy's funny. 
But we went to the table read of news radio where it was like, you know, boom, 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 boom. And this thing is flying around. And Ray, it would get to him and he'd be like, I was like, wow, it's taken him 10 minutes to do every line. And, you know, we all thought the guy was funny, but it just we had one of those meetings. We're like, listen, you know, we got to replace him. And, and Joe did a great job with the part and stayed in the thing for years. But obviously, that was the best thing ever. Ray, and he's actually even talked about it. You know, he was like, just not right for that part. And uh, it worked out okay for the kid. Yeah, three years later, he won the Emmy. He either won the Emmy, yes. He, you know, <laughs> it was like the number one show. Lorne Michaels. You know, Lorne, if I, if I really do have a show business hero, it's Lorne. I think one of the great things for me, I talk about that four years. You talk about where, like, bad times can give you a gift. The fact, taking a full circle, that I was like the... 11 year old kid that watched Saturday Night Live that said that is the uh, how do I do that how do I be involved in something like that and then I'm backstage sitting in his booth with him watching his shows like those are the show business moments where you go this is pretty damn cool and Lorne you know who's a complex guy that not that that a lot of people revere and but not a lot of people know going through the 30 Rock experience and him knowing I went on the hook I actually, he kind of let me behind the curtain a little bit, and I got to see, I don't say that I have any more insight than anybody else, but I realized, okay, he's let me in the club. Like, I'm okay with him. And, uh, and we still maintain a friendship, and I still go to New York and have drinks with him, and I ultimately, whatever I just said, he could fill a thimble. That's like, that, you know, that's not even chapter one for him, that's the preface. And the greatest raconteur on the planet, by the way. Talk about story. So... I'm always saying, like, can we just record this? And, you know, he just that makes him cringe because he just doesn't want to. That's not him. Uh, but, you know, really a, a friend in a, in, in a, you know, and a hero. Tell our audience, if you were writing a book and a holy shit moment story would be the highlight chapter of your book, something that happened to you that nobody could ever believe happened, <laughs> what would that story be? I'm trying to think which one to pick. I mean, look, the, 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 you know, the, the good one, the great one was the one I already told where the poor guy with the stutter was trying to tell me we just made cable history. That, for me, was a morning where I thought, did that just happen? And um, I, I look, I guess I take that one, one better, which is the night Michael Chiklis did win the Emmy. We were nominated at the time, and, I, and you know, the, the, the governor's ball tickets are like $2,000 a pop. And I said, like, we didn't have a big budget. I said, listen, we're not going to win, so let's not get the governor's ball tickets. Let's turn those back, and let's get some more tickets to the show so more people could go, more executives. It'll be a fun night. We'll go out drinking afterwards. And so we turned the governor's ball tickets in, and all of a sudden he wins. And so I was like, shit, we can't get into the governor's ball. So we had to, like, scam our way into the governor's ball and, like, we're like creating a diversion and we're passing back the stubs. Like we're like, you know, kids like trying to break into a, the ball field and literally like Liguori gets like the guys with the mics and the sleeves. Like we got an incident over here. They got them like pinned up against the wall. I'm like, Oh good. I'm there's my cover. I like made a break for it. And like, you know, that was, one, that was one of them. Was there some show that you came in and they made the presentation and you just, you didn't see it. You passed on it. And then, you had to watch it on another network and see it be successful. You know, fortunately, no, no, I, uh, that, that never happened where I passed on one that became like that. The closest I ever had was 
I, I got pitched, and I don't even know if I was the lead candidate or whatever. I was pitched Buffy the Vampire, Sl- Vampire Slayer at the time, and I was like, I don't really think this is going to work for us, and it seems like a cult movie, and it went on to become a really successful show, but you know, fortunately that doesn't inflict great pain on me. I think the one, the one thing that really did hurt was that when I went to NBC was at that second go-round, was I really felt we needed to do big conceptual things and and soaps and it was like I was fighting the system I, I I developed some none of them were any good I'm not even sure anybody believed we should do it and that was the year that like Lost and Desperate Housewives came on so I remember looking at that and going that's exactly what I had in mind and now they're on other networks so they weren't pitched to me I wasn't pa- I didn't pass on them but I just it was really hard to live through that when I was like oh I I I knew that was the playbook. I just couldn't get to it in time. You say you haven't navigated well at times, but you have navigated. You have the tools in your emotional toolbox. Yeah. And you formed and kept these relationships sometimes with people who have been a part of the decision to let you go. Anybody who lied to me or truly screwed, you know, look, life goes on. You know, I I forgive. I don't forget. But uh, so I'm not necessarily be best friends with those people. But, uh, you know, but there's also been times when I've just somebody I respected and liked and they they were square with me. We were just we weren't just lined up and, you know, at the at the, at the right moment in time. And so that's you, like you move on. And the lesson I learned from today is that I sit across from a guy who I respect for so many years. And I I personally have taken a lot of hits in my career in my life. Like I was in New York and I got a chance to go see Chappelle and he invites me to a show yeah. and then he invites me backstage and I'm sitting in a dressing room with a guy who I managed yeah. for eight years but I haven't really had a relationship yeah. with. And then when you sit down and you have those conversations, you realize that the relationships that you formed around town are amazing. Isn't that incredible? That, that That's it brings to mind, I just happened to see the other night it was a function when Norman Lear was speaking, 94 years old. And he did the show, the Industry Standard, one of the greatest shows I ever did. And, you know, look, at 94, people will, will applaud for you if you're just sort of standing up straight <laughs> and can get into the chair. And yet the guy is, is, you know, you think the guy's 34. But he told, you know, long story short, he talked about he had a very complicated relationship with Carol O'Connor. And he talked about how, you know, I guess they had a lot of battles and, and, and Carol was a difficult guy. But obviously, was not only created a classic character, but as Norman said, y- y- there was no there was uh, there was no Archie Bunker without Carol O'Connor, and he had written, uh, you know, they didn't speak much. I think after the show ended, but he had written a letter to Carol somewhere along the way, really telling him what it what it what it was, and I guess when Carol died, Norman went over to his house. And his widow, and he wanted to just pay his respects to his wife. And she said, no, no, I want, you to, I want you to see something. And she brought him into Carol's bedroom where there had been a desk. And they opened the desk. And she said, I want you to show you something. Do you remember that letter you sent, whatever it was, how many years ago? And he said, yeah. And she goes, I want you to see something. And she opened the desk. And right there in the middle of the desk was the letter intact, sitting on the top where Carol had kept it year after year. And he knew, he said, so in that moment, Carol never called him up and said, hey, we're great. Let's start palling around together. But he could make his piece saying, you know what? He knew what I knew. And then we were we were good. And and like that Chappelle story where you're sitting across from the guy and you're like, oh, I didn't talk to him much, but we had a moment. And then you're backstage. Sometimes those things come around and they have a little 
closure in some way and a little influence and that's those are amazing things and i think that for me is the good part of getting older you get a little perspective on that and you realize like all right maybe that was a wound years ago maybe it was a frustration maybe it didn't end right but if you hang in there long enough some of it comes around and you go oh all right kind of even that one up i mean you you've been a part of you've been in a game for a long time too you see sometimes guys who are having all this success at one point and you look up and you go who who did i fuck like what's wrong with me like this guy is crushing it i can't even get a break and then you look years later and you realize that guy's out of the business like he's literally gone like you don't even know where is he nobody knows and you're like you're still here you're still here and you know staying in the game is is a part of it and um and so you have those moments when you're sitting in the dressing room and you talk about it and you have those moments when Norman Lear sees the letter on on that guy's desk and I have my own versions of that. You know, that's pretty cool. Your proudest moment in show business. You know, I, I, it's funny. I don't I, it's a good question I have to think about because I don't have one. You know, I don't have the one where I have those those moments where it was like a tectonic shift forward. I mean, I have a picture in my office of being held up the night that the, 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 the office won the, the Emmy, what I had just fought for, and all of a sudden, there it was. I was like, what a, you know, that's a great thing to just look at, you know? So there are those moments. I, uh, the proudest, I don't have the one night where I'm just sort of, uh, you know, boy, that, that's it. Uh, there's fortunately been a number of them because, you know, we're in the what have you done for me lately business, so the, the one doesn't get you, only gets you so far anyway. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level? Well, as we just outlined, there's been a number of them, you know, and um, uh, and that was sometimes doing good work but not have it add up, you know, or just being at the wrong place at the right time or the right place for the wrong time. And how does it fuel you? like anyone, you know, the cliche, you know, what don't kill you don't makes you stronger. And, and it's just a hundred percent true. You know, you figure out, okay, how do you get a little craftier? You know, how do you zig and zag? Um, I think because, you know, it's funny for all the stories we just told, those two questions I don't have, and I'm going to think about them. I think because part of my thing is always is there's just not a moment, you know. it's There's big ones at the time, and you look back five years later and go, yeah, that was big, but, you know, it was all part of the, all part of the story. What advice would you give for the young kid growing up in Long Island and how to figure out a way to navigate, have the kind of amazing career that you've had? Also, what advice would you have for the young artist to be the kind of talent that's a lead actor or actress in one of the shows that you produced or have been the president for? Yeah. Well, look, they all start in the same place, whether one becomes an artist or one becomes a, an executive or, you know, uh, runs their own company or represents talent. You know, it starts with some version of, 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 a, of a dream that seems weird or seems you know, uh, like not possible. And, um, you know, today I think there are so many more resources available. Forget the Google search, you know, today, if you want to, you know, think about 
now it's almost amazing to think, well, how the hell did anyone become a director? Like, well, how did you do that even? Like, I mean, there's the story of like Spielberg throwing the script over the fence, but like a director, you needed like, you needed equipment that wasn't available that was like tens of thousands of dollars to rent and a crew that had to go out and do it. Now you need an iPhone <laughs> and you're good to go. And by the way, you could post it for free. And if it's pretty good, you, someone would actually hire you <laughs> off of that. And it is the absolute truth. So the tools are so much more available. And today also, I'd say even some of the breakdown and the, the clickishness of the business where, you know, you had to know somebody and you get a, a, you know, some cred. And if you didn't have the combination, you went, now we know there's a million artists running around trying to get an agent. We know there's a million executives who can't get their call returned or do you want executives dreaming of that? So it still takes the same resiliency and curiosity and just belief, you know, belief yet openness. You know, I, I as you know, as someone who's managed artists, you see the ones who, believe in themselves to not listen to all the stupid input they got, which is, man, you're too tall. Or you should cut your hair or fix your nose or, I don't know, your voice is weird or I don't think they're going to want your type. Tune all of that out. But also the ones that are smart enough to know, like, when is the advice good? You know, there's the ones who are in their own way that think they're like geniuses and everything they do is absolute gold and they're going to listen to no one. Well, a lot of those guys, you know, are, are over at Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf right now, you know, <laughs> talking about their, you know, big project they got in the works and the town's littered with them. So I, I, I think it's like, you know, seek out those, seek out those positive influences. Anyone that gives you a nugget where you go, that guy, that makes sense to me. You know, that guy gets me, you know, okay. You know, who's the Barry Katz who goes, that guy gets me, you know, and has given me good advice. Um, but at the same token, not listening to everybody or you're just nothing, you know, and that goes the same even when you get the power. That's the moral of my whole story here is I've been in jobs that have been, quote unquote, powerful jobs, even at the time, not even feeling like I had all the power in there. But I realized ultimately I actually do and the buck does stop here. I am actually the one that's going to say yay or nay. So I'm going with these. And if you're going to fire me, fire me. But at the end of the day, I'll put I'll put my money on these. And fortunately, I look up. And more often than not, there were things where I was like, well, okay, I bet on those. So I'm happy. I'm proud that I did. I knew through the NBC experience. So when you talk about the adversity, I guess here's your answer. After four years of a job that really was miserable, I realized I was going to get fired. So I thought when I get fired, I want to look at self, my, myself in the mirror and go, I put on what I believed in. And then I look back and I can say proudly, it was Friday Night Lights, it was Heroes, it was 30 Rock, it was, the, it was The Office, it was shows like that. And I was like, okay, I'll stand behind those. And turned out to be a pretty good thing. Kevin Riley, this has been unbelievable. You are just truly first class. I'm so grateful you took the time. Great. Glad we could finally do it. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend 
a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Esther Thomas from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Stay calm. Congratulations, Esther. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Ransberg five-star review on October 4th, 2016, titled Highly Entertaining. The review reads, quote, Barry is full of great stories. Listening to the podcast feels like you're sitting with friends as they tell stories, unquote. Thank you, Ransberg. Love your name. Congratulations. You are a winner. And as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.